Chapter Four of In the Line of Battle, edited by Walter Wood. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four: A Linesman in Gallipoli. A vivid understanding of the work which our soldiers did in Gallipoli during the earlier stages of the operations in the Dardanelles, and of the strange happenings which were of daily occurrence in fighting the German-led Turks, is given by this story, which is told by Private John Frank Gray, 5th Battalion, Wiltshire Regiment. Everybody knows how the transport River Clyde, with two thousand British soldiers packed in her, was deliberately run ashore on V Beach, at the southern point of the Gallipoli Peninsula. Great holes had been cut in her steel sides to make doors through which the men could get ashore when she was hard and fast, without embarking in any sort of craft. Land they did, in the end, though they suffered heavily through the Turks' terrific fire. I did not see that famous and wonderful performance, but I disembarked with my regiment, close to the transport, while she was still aground. We had almost the same experience as the troops from the River Clyde had gone through. We forced a landing, in spite of barbed wire entanglements in the water, traps which had caught many a fine fellow, and held him till the enemy's fire got him. It is odd to talk of wire entanglements in the sea, grabbing and tearing you as you plunge into the water to wade ashore, but there they were, one more new feature in a war that has been full of strange and devilish things. Before we landed in Gallipoli we had experience of transport, trawler, barge, and pinnace, and we were no sooner at the end of the voyage from England than we were under deadly fire and in the thick of it. We went right into the firing line, and the Turks gave us more than a warm reception. It was hot. We were under fire all the time we were landing, but we had the uncommon good luck to suffer no loss. As we forced our way ashore, we saw plenty of evidence of the desperate nature of the adventure of the men of the River Clyde. But we were too much absorbed in our own affairs to pay much heed to what had happened to other fellows. We had got ashore on July 16th at Sedul Bar and stayed there all night. So that we should be as comfortable as possible, we made dugouts in the face of the cliff. The cliff at that place is very hard, and we had plenty of blasting to do, as well as work with pick and shovel. My mates and I had put plenty of elbow grease into our own particular job, and had finished our dugout and got into it, to be cosy for the night. It was very much like animals going to bed. We were worn out, and lost no time in going to sleep. I had gone off soundly, and knew nothing till I was roughly roused by some fellows shouting, Wake up! Wake up! Three of our chaps are buried alive! We did not need a second rousing. We all sprang up and rushed to a spot not far away, where we saw that there had been a fall of earth and rock, and we dug harder than we had ever dug before. At the end of it, having dug to a depth of three feet, and thrown the earth and rock away from us, we came across three poor chaps of my company, who had been buried by a fall of earth caused by them digging too far into the ground to give them shelter. They had undermined too much, and the earth roof had collapsed and crushed them. We saw at once that there was no hope. The men looked as if they had been killed on the spot. They must have been dead an hour, but we put them on stretchers and the field ambulance did all they could. But it was too late. Next day we dug graves for them and put crosses over. There are some fine graveyards out there, well cared for, and with barbed wire fences to preserve them. While we were burying our comrades, the Turks fired on us continuously, 
and this had to serve as the last volleys over the fallen. That solemn and tragic beginning of my experiences after landing at Gallipoli will never fade from my mind. Even at this early stage I noticed the extraordinary luck of war. Some of the King's own Lancasters had been in the trenches for fourteen days, and during the whole of that time they had had only twenty casualties. They left the trenches and came right up alongside of us, on a little bit of a mound. The Turks must have got wind that a lot of troops were on the move, for the shrapnel came bursting over the lot of us, especially the Lancasters, who in less than half an hour lost more than forty men, fourteen being killed and the rest wounded. Four or five of our own fellows were hit, so that we escaped lightly, and were able to send our stretcher-bearers to give a hand in getting the wounded soldiers to hospital. The burying alive of men and the loss of men who had spent a fortnight in the trenches unscathed were the things I saw when I was spending my first night in Gallipoli, so I can very fairly say that we landed right in the thick of it. It was a hot start, and it did not get cooler, for on the following morning, when we were on the way to the trenches at Achi Baba, we were under constant shrapnel fire. We crawled and crept up as best we could, using roads, or rather tracks, which had been made by the twenty-ninth division. It was fearfully hot, we were heavily laden, and there was nothing but prickly scrub and rock and stifling dust about, and bursting shell all the time. But we forged slowly ahead, making the best of it, and thankful when we got into one of the little ravines which abound there, and make first-rate natural trenches, thankful because we got shelter without having to dig for it. In this advance some of our chaps fell, and the ravines formed their resting-places. The graves were filled in and crosses put over to tell how the soldiers had died. I might say here that whenever it was possible to do so, an army chaplain read the burial service, but often enough a funeral had to take place with no chaplain near at hand. An advance like this is a slow business. You go in single file, keeping your heads well down, because of the stray bullets from snipers. The Turkish snipers are dead shots. I will tell you more about them later. At the end of our dodging and ducking and crawling in single file, we got into a support trench, and I began to breathe a bit more freely, because I thought that here at any rate I was safe. But we had no sooner reached the front-line trenches than the Turks started shelling us, and very quickly I thought that the very end of me had come. There was a tremendous crash just overhead, then a horrible rumbling, then I was knocked down in a heap, and all I knew was that a shell had burst in the trench, and that I was buried in a mass of earth and rock. I was bruised and stunned, so were four of my chums who were near me, but we had better luck than the three poor fellows who had been buried by the fall of earth above them. And pretty soon we had worried our way out of the heap of muck and were staring at each other, and I shall never forget that incident, if it is only because of the stupid way in which we stared at each other, and never said a word. We were making tea when the shell burst, and were looking forward to a cosy meal. But here we were, staring at each other in surprise, wondering what the dickens the matter was, till we looked around and saw what sorry objects we were, and that the tea-gear had been scattered all over the place. When we had got over our fright, and what's the use of saying that we weren't scared, we saw the grim humour of it, and laughed and pulled ourselves together, thankful that we were still in the land of the living. That was part of our early introduction to shell-fire, and we very soon learned that you never know what sort of a trick a shell is up to. 
Shells are very deceiving. You hear their peculiar and horrible whistle, and think that they are going to burst anywhere except where they do. When we had pulled ourselves together, we left our shattered trench and went into another part of the trench to pull round a bit and get out of the shrapnel bombardment. But within three hours we were back again and settled down, wondering what the coming night had in store for us. We were in for another surprise, though at that time, of course, we did not know it. This surprise took the shape of an attack upon us by hand grenades, or bombs. It was pitch dark, but the blackness was lit up near us in patches, caused by the explosion of the bombs. We got half a dozen of them, and as it was clear that some Turks had crept towards us from their firing line, which was only about two hundred yards away, we sent out a sergeant and five or six men to hunt the bomb-throwers. You might as well have looked for a needle in a haystack, as try to find Turks who were hiding in the darkness, in the shrubs or the ravines. At any rate, our chaps did not see or hear anything of the Turks, and they had to come back without doing anything. There was no doubt that the Turks had crept up to us quite close, and then hurled their bombs. But we were lucky to escape with only one man slightly wounded, though if the bombers had had any luck we should have been blown to pieces. These intensely dark nights were always very trying, because of these attacks. It was an immense relief when the moonlight nights came, because then the Turks dared not try their tricks on. There was always the guard, of course, two hours on and two hours off. This gave a great sense of protection, but the guard work itself gave you the creeps. You were on the rack all the time, fancying that you saw someone approaching when as a matter of fact there was no one near. There was always the chance, too, of being picked off by a sniper who used horrible explosive bullets. One of our men was struck down, and when we went up to him and removed his helmet we saw at once that an explosive bullet had been used, for the skull was completely shattered. You could always tell when these awful things had been used, from the appearance of the sandbags. The bullets would strike and explode, and smash the sandbags so badly that it took us all our time to make the damage good. You dare not put even a periscope above the trench. If you did, a sniper got a bullet through it before you knew where you were. It was all tremendously exciting, and there was never a chance of being dull or downhearted. The system of trenches was amazing turning and twisting everywhere in the most wonderful manner. We made the most of these complications, too, by naming the trenches Oxford Street, Regent Street, and so on, with Clapham Junction and the like for important junctions of trenches. These names, which were chalked up or put on boards, were most useful in helping you to find your way about, and sometimes very amusing misunderstandings arose. "'Do you know where Oxford Circus is?' a chap asked me one day. Rather, I told him, proud to throw light on his ignorance. And I began to tell him, till he cut me short by snapping that he wasn't talking about London, but the trenches. We got many a good laugh out of these little misunderstandings, for out at the front you were always ready to make the most of the smallest joke. You needed all the cheerfulness you could get, too, because of the awful sights that constantly met you and the endless peril you were in. I shall never forget one of the very first things my eyes saw in those opening days of my campaigning in Gallipoli. We got to the spot at Achi Baba, where the Munsters and the Dublin Fusiliers, during a gallant advance, had been enfiladed by machine-gun fire, and literally mown down. From the trench we had occupied, we could see the men lying just as they had fallen, while trying to take cover. 
there they were on the open ground absolutely riddled with bullets and with their packs on and their rifles and bayonets and everything else they had been lying there for about a fortnight because it was impossible to do anything in the way of burying them owing to the enemy's incessant fire and sniping things hereabouts were particularly horrible we went into a turkish trench that had been taken and started to make a fire trench we pulled away the old sandbags and dug away at the parapet with our picks there was a horrible stench but we were used to smells and did not take much notice of it till we found that the picks had a lot of foul stuff on them which we could not account for but we soon discovered that the parapet was composed of the dead bodies of turks which had been piled up and just covered with earth the sandbags being placed on the top of the wall of corpses in this same trench there was a well which had been covered with planks naturally enough we began to explore it not that we expected to get anything to drink from it and when we had removed the planks we found that the well which we calculated was ten or twelve feet deep had a lot of dead turks in it we counted six of them and had enough of the job so we put the planks back and felt that our curiosity had been satisfied when we had been there four or five days and were getting used to the appearance of the country we saw a turk just peeping over the top of a little mound with his rifle pointing towards us and in the attitude of firing we felt sure that we had caught a sniper and two or three shots were promptly fired the turk was still there and it was clear that he had been shot later on we were able to get near him and then we saw that he was black with flies and had been shot through the eye while sniping but not shot by us because when we shook him his head fell off showing that he had been dead for some time we saw another turk who was sitting against a tree we went up and found that he too was dead he looked a mere skeleton but he was swathed in clothing and equipment in the most extraordinary fashion his trousers were all rags and his tunic was all patches of differently coloured cloths he had three shirts and two belts on and we wondered how he had stuck so many clothes in such stifling weather i had an exciting adventure one day a bit too exciting to be altogether pleasant i and another chap had been sent out to an artillery position which was called clapham junction station to get some corrugated iron we had a long way two and a half miles to go and it was necessary to keep to the cover of the trenches whenever we could do so we were able to do that for most of the way going through the very trenches which had been dug by the poor chaps of the munsters and dublin fusiliers who had fallen we got to the end of our journey quite near the french lines and then started back with our corrugated iron burdened in this way we found that one of the trenches was too narrow for us to get along and we were forced to make our way across open country for about five hundred yards as soon as we left the shelter of the trench the sun shone on our galvanized metal and gave the turks a good target we promptly had three or four shells bursting near us and we lost no time in doubling over the open ground staggering along with the iron sheets and thankful when we were under shelter again with a farewell shell or two to show us what a narrow squeak we had had i picked up one of these shells which had not burst and kept it a long time meaning to bring it home as a souvenir but I found it a nuisance and had to throw it away. We were constantly seeing strange sights and learning how cunning the Turks were. One morning I saw some Australians bring in a Turk who was wearing one of our uniforms. The tunics had white patches on them, so that our artillery could distinguish us, 
and it was one of these that the fellow wore. He had no doubt taken it from a dead British soldier, and so dressed he had joined a party of Australians, who were drawing water at a well. He kept his mouth shut, and might have gone undiscovered, but he and an Australian began quarrelling, then fighting, and that gave him away, because he could not speak English. They shot him, as a spy, the following morning. At the same place, I am now speaking of W. Beach, where we were resting, we saw a Turkish sniper on the top of a hill. We sent out two or three times to try and get him, but failed, but at last he was caught while robbing one of our fellows who was dead. The sniper had shot him, and now he was out for plunder. When we had this sniper in hand, we found that we had got hold of a very dangerous customer, a man who had done a lot of mischief amongst our fellows. He had gone about his sniping in a very business-like way, and had established himself in a spot which commanded points which had to be continually passed by our stretcher-bearers and working parties. A good many of the R.A.M.C. chaps were hit, and it was curious that most of the wounds were about the knee. We discovered that these wounds were the result of the sniper's low firing. He was very near the ground and had pretty near complete control of this particular spot. Our fellows used to double round it, for all they were worth, but they were not fast enough to dodge the Turk's bullets. When we examined his dugout, we found three rifles fixed on tripods, which were always trained on the spots where our fellows had to pass. In addition to that he had a machine-gun, and this he used for firing on our men when he knew that it was meal-time and that they were in clusters. It was a great relief when his account was settled. Aircraft fighting has developed enormously during the war, and I saw an exciting fight between three of our aeroplanes and two of the Turks. We had got a bit used to aeroplanes, for a Taube had swooped over us and dropped a chance bomb which blew up the quartermaster's stores. Three bombs fell about a hundred yards away, and I noticed that the noise they made when they came through the air was just like the whistle of a railway engine. In the fight I am talking about, our fellows brought down one of the Turkish machines, and they made a hard chase after the other, but it got away. It was a really thrilling fight, and our chaps got tremendously excited over it. We had been warned of an attack from the air by three blasts on a whistle, and that was the signal to take shelter and to cover up the guns with tarpaulins to hide them. During these attacks you are supposed never to look up, but the fight was so splendid and our chaps got so excited that the warning was forgotten in many cases, and chaps were peeping over the parapets and some were actually standing up on the parapets. Poor fellows! Turkish snipers spotted them and got three with their bullets. I was only about a hundred yards away when they were killed. Their loss, which was a lesson to all of us, cast quite a gloom over our victory in the air. After being in the trenches at Achi Baba for sixteen days, we went to Lemnos, a big naval base about four and a half hours distant by transport. We were supposed to have a week's rest, but we were at Lemnos only three days. At the end of that time we went back to the peninsula and landed at Anzac, and went straight up to the firing line, which had been made at Chunuk Bar, and our regiment got absolutely cut up. It was one of the things that will happen in a war like this. We had gone up into the trenches, and nothing much happened while we were there. After our spell in the trenches, we were taken up into a gully for twenty-four hours rest and sleep. We were in high spirits at the prospect of such a change, and we took our equipment off and made a few dugouts and got into them and settled down, 
and very comfortable and contented we were. But our rest and peace was smashed at dawn on the following morning, when we were thrown into confusion by a heavy Turkish attack. The Turks had advanced into the firing line on the opposite side of the hill. There were plenty of them, and they had machine-guns, while we were quite helpless, having no rifles nor equipment. Indeed, many of us had not even our jackets on, and we were taking it easy. There was quite a stampede for the time being, and someone passed the order, "'Every man for himself!' It was a mistake, I am certain, but it added immensely to the confusion. That awful alarm caused some of our unarmed chaps to make a bolt for it, the result of temporary panic, and now came one of those splendid bits of work which are the pride of every regiment, and which no one can do better than British soldiers. The adjutant, Captain Belcher, rallied about seventy of the men. He pulled them together, put heart of grace into them, and shouted to them to get their rifles and bayonets and follow him. There is nothing like an heroic example at such a time. The little band rallied round the adjutant, and with wild cheers and a gallant rush they hurled themselves upon the Turks, and such was the suddenness and fury of their attack that the Turks bolted like children, and big hefty chaps they were, with our fellows, some of them almost as small as dwarfs, tearing after them with the bayonet. In this furious affair one of our men got wounded and could not walk. The adjutant picked him up and began to carry him away. As he did so, the Turks opened fire on him with a machine-gun, and he must have been riddled. I never saw anything more of him. At the same time, Lieutenant Ratcliffe, who had been wounded, was being carried off on a stretcher. He seemed to think that the chance of escape was hopeless, and so he said to his bearers, "'Put me down and look after yourselves, boys. I shall be all right.' It was a hard thing to do, but the men obeyed, and all of us who could do so got away from that fatal spot, which we were far too weak to hold, in spite of the success of the adjutant's rally, and at last we got back to the beach. It was then that we compared notes, and heard of what had happened in various places, and the roll having been called, we supposed that every man who could escape had reached the beach. But two nights afterwards we formed a search-party, and went back up the hill, and were lucky enough to find and bring back with us about a dozen poor fellows who had been lying all that time on the battlefield. From this rescue we supposed that there must be other men alive at the top of the hill, but there was no chance of reaching them in the daytime, and we could not go at night, for the searchlights from our own warships swept the hillside and lit it up so brilliantly that any search-party would have been shown up to the snipers. So we did no more, and soon we were forgetting, for we were hard at work on fatigue, helping the engineers to build a new firing line, a trench about fourteen hundred yards long. Then happened a thing so strange that it seemed beyond belief like men rising from the dead. Fifteen days had passed since the fight, and no one dreamed that there could possibly be survivors. Yet there appeared at the beach headquarters two terribly worn and haggard men, Lance Corporal A. G. Scott of my company, and Private R. Humphreys, another of our chaps. We were amazed to see them, and far more amazed to hear their story, which was that they and Private W. J. Head had been up in the hill for fifteen days and nights, unable to get away, and living on the biscuits and water that they had taken from the haversacks and bottles of dead men. The Turks, they said, used to pass them and shake hands with them, but would never give them any food or water. The three used to grope about in the daytime to get food and drink, and the Turks sniped at them whenever they got the chance. 
head was quite unable to escape having had two bad wounds scott and humphreys desperate at last crawled away and managed to reach our regimental headquarters and tell their wonderful story and it was no sooner heard than a search party was organized and with scott and humphreys as guides went back to the old fighting place a slow and dangerous job on the first night they found nothing but on the next night the relieving party came across three fellows and brought them down head was amongst them he had been out getting more biscuits and water and while doing so his right arm was smashed by a machine-gun which was trained on him the body of the poor lieutenant was found with several bayonet wounds and he like all the other officers who fell had been completely stripped by plunderers the bodies had not a thing on them the survivors of those awful days and nights on the hillside from august tenth to august twenty sixth had such a welcome as can be given only to those who return when they have been given up as lost and scott and head and humphreys have been awarded the distinguished conduct medal there have been some extraordinary incidents in this war but not many are stranger than this adventure of this little band of men for what must have seemed an endless fortnight and none that will stand out more finely in the annals of the wiltshires there was so much to be seen and done in the three months i spent in the near east that it is not easy to describe everything and i must now mention only one or two things more very clearly in my mind stands out our attack on chocolate hill after the warships had bombarded it for three days we watched the naval guns at work and saw the terrible havoc they caused many a turk we saw flying up in the air when the shells burst when we advanced over salt lake we had to cross a hayfield under a very heavy fire the bursting shrapnel knocked many a fellow down and we could not stop to help them or pick them up and that was terribly hard on us for the hayfield had taken fire and it meant that a lot of helpless men were burned alive i saw one poor chap a yeoman struck by shrapnel this made him completely helpless for the time and the fire got at him and burnt half his left leg off but i am thankful to say that he managed by a truly desperate effort to crawl away and he got out of it at the finish we were in the advance and as the field was catching fire just as we got out of it we escaped the worst which was to be caught in the middle so that even those who were fit and could make a rush were badly burned and suffering intensely before they could get clear of the horrible ring of fire i can tell you of an extraordinary incident that happened in the chocolate hill attack to a man of the south wales borderers in the second bayonet charge he drove his steel into a turk and it broke off he dashed without his bayonet and rushed with his chums to the next trench where he plumped into a turk who was crawling through a hole knowing that his broken bayonet was useless he clubbed his rifle and let the turk have the butt the blow smashed the butt clean off and the borderer tumbled down the turk who was not much hurt sprang back from his hole and jumped to his feet with the englishman fairly at his mercy luckily for the borderer a pal rushed up and saved him by settling the turk it was an extraordinary thing that the borderer first broke his bayonet and then bashed his butt which came off as clean as a whistle another thing that happened was this an officer was wounded and fell one of the men of his regiment heard the report that the officer was missing i'll go find him he said and off he went after an hour's search he found the officer and asked him if he could walk no the officer told him so the man picked him up and started to carry him a hard and dangerous job 
while the officer was being carried he was wounded again a bullet striking him put me down he ordered and look after yourself no sir said the man if you're game i am and game he was too for he got him safely away and the officer to show his gratitude made the man a present of his revolver and a silver flask when the soldier rejoined his regiment they took the revolver away but he kept the flask as a memento carefully wrapped it up in all sorts of things very proud of the gift from the officer who had said i shall never forget you the officer was mortally wounded and died before they could get him into the hospital ship it was round chocolate hill that we made our queerest find of all women snipers there was a kind of blockhouse which had been a farmhouse and it had a very fine well which had some very fine water a precious thing there was a big run on the well and a lot of fellows were shot by snipers who could not be traced till a fellow in a welsh regiment swore that he could see some one moving in some trees not very far away a machine-gun was brought up and fifty rounds or so were fired into the trees which dropped some very rare fruit four men turks and one woman turk all snipers when we went up we found that they were almost naked and had their faces and hands and bodies and rifles painted green to match the trees and they were roosted like evil birds potting at our chaps whenever they got the chance which was pretty often this was such a good haul that firing was directed on all the trees and more snipers were brought down including several women some of the women wore trousers like the men and some had a kind of full grey coloured skirt they were as thin as rats and looked as if they had had nothing to eat for months i think there were six or seven women snipers caught in the trees and it is said that the turks have women in the trenches but i don't know if that is true i saw one woman sniper who had been caught by the new zealanders i don't know what was done with her but as the men came back they told us they had bagged her in a dugout where she had a machine-gun and a rifle and that she seemed to have been doing a very good business in sniping dysentery knocked me out in the end and after spending a fortnight in hospital at malta i had h s b hospital ship berth put opposite to my name i came home in a hospital ship a foreigner which made me thankful when i landed at southampton and entered a good old english hospital train bound for manchester End of chapter four